Thanks, team. We appreciate you leading us this morning. Singing's great, just a great part of the Christmas season, and you've done it so well for us this morning. Thank you for leading us. Good morning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. And that is the Christmas story, according to the Apostle John. There is no shepherds, no away in a manger or cattle lowing, No angelic announcement. John remained focused on his purpose for writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. John's purpose for writing was first and foremost to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And secondly, that eternal life is found only in him. John chapter 20, verse 31. And for those of us who are already trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, the gospel according to John bolsters our confidence and assurance in our relationship with God and in that inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, kept in heaven for us, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. I can't think of a better Christmas present. And it reminds me of those MasterCard commercials. Maybe it would go something like this. A box of candy cane, $5. A butterball turkey, $30. A Christmas tree, $50. A reconciled relationship with God, including including eternal life, Priceless. And for everything else, there's MasterCard. (laughs) Folks, it's not even close. For those who would respond appropriately to John's purpose for writing this gospel account, it is the best Christmas present you could ever receive. Last week, we hit the pause button on our trip through John chapter 4, so that we could focus on verses 23 and 24. You'll remember Jesus is responding to a question about worship, and he provides three identifying marks of true worshipers. So if we want to be the kind of worshipers that God is seeking, these three must be part of us. We must be God-seeking, or God-focused, Spirit-empowered and word-centered. God focused in the sense that it's all about Him, not us. It's not about individual preferences or performances or needs and wants. Rather, our expressions of gratitude, honor, and respect are all about Him, His person, His plans, His purposes. That's the focus of true worship. Spirit empowered means that you and I are incapable of this kind of purpose, this kind of worship apart from the Spirit of God. So true worshipers are those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Because apart from that indwelling Spirit, true worship is impossible. 
word-centered. The scriptures are to be our worship manual. Second Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 read, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, including the good work of true worship. So true worshipers are God-focused, spirit-empowered, and word-centered. That was last week. Two weeks ago, we looked at and studied John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. And Jesus and his disciples, you'll remember, were making their way back home to the province of Galilee, following the trip to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They chose to take the short way home through the province of Samaria. And you'll recall that there is a long-standing wall of hatred separating Jew from Samaritan. Perhaps not all that unlike the relationship between the Palestinians and Israelis of our day. And yet, that wall of hatred did not prevent Jesus from reaching out and taking the initiative to engage in a conversation with a despised, unnamed, immoral, marginalized Samaritan woman. As we studied this episode in the life and ministry of Jesus, as reported by John, we not only saw evidence that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, we also found an example to follow. By initiating a conversation, Jesus dared to build a bridge over that wall of hatred so that this despised non-Jewish woman could cross over from death to life, eternal life. And now, as his ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, we can follow in his steps. Two weeks ago, we identified six steps or stages of engagement from Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman. Step one, take the initiative by expressing a personal need. Step two, bait them by suggesting spiritual possibilities. Step three, share the benefits, advantages of a God-empowered life. Step four, test their integrity. Step five, invite them to seek the life that God intends. And step six, introduce them to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Chuck Tate was a member of the board back in the early 1980s when I was serving as the associate pastor at Oxford Baptist Church on the other side of the city. I remember a board meeting. It was Chuck's turn to share the devotional prior to the start of the meeting. And he began with this little rhyme. To say it, to think a thing and to say a thing does not necessarily mean that it is done. And he went on to confess that there were times when he came up with a really good idea. And he would share it with Norma, his wife. And that's as far as it ever went. 
he then turned to a passage of scripture and that addressed faithfulness, the need to act and not just think and talk about it. I don't remember the passage of scripture that he turned to, but I've never been able to forget that little rhyme. To think a thing and to say a thing does not necessarily mean that it is done. How do we prevent that from happening with the example that Jesus provides in John chapter 1 verses, or John chapter 4 verses 1 to 26? We know that we should be building bridges. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We talk about it. We know the six steps of engagement, and yet we never seem to get around to initiating those conversations, those spiritual conversations with friends, family members, associates who are, who are not yet trusting Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of God. Why is that? It's a good question. This morning, as we continue making our way through John chapter 4, verses 27 to 38, it provides us with some insights that will enable us to build bridges that lead to spiritual conversations. So please turn with me to John chapter 4. And if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. John chapter 4, and I'll begin in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? 
Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, There are yet four, do you not say, There are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritan believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. May God add his blessing and our understanding to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Father, we know because your word tells us that you are not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And yet, perishing will be their destiny if they refuse to acknowledge you and respond appropriately to your demonstration of love for them. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to spiritual realities and enabled us to trust Jesus alone for our salvation. Old things have passed away. Behold, New things have come. Not that we are perfect, but we are in the process of working out in our lives what you have already accomplished in Christ on our behalf. And we do accept the responsibility of telling others this good news. Enable us even today, as we study this episode in the life of Jesus, to become more effective, faithful ambassadors, bridge builders, imitators, and facilitators of spiritual conversations. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my ministry highlights of the ten and a half years I spent serving as the pastor of Calvary Church in Saskatoon involved a man that had never stepped a foot inside the door of that church. An older man, probably closing in on 80 years old, started attending our Sunday morning worship services with his wife. And Merv invited me to join a group of his friends for coffee at the local Fuddruckers every Thursday morning. Anywhere from about six to twelve of us would show up, depending on the week. I think I was the youngest at the table by about 40 years. In fact, I think you could double my age, and I was still the youngest at the table. 
Around the table were some of Saskatoon's movers and shakers from yesteryears. I counted a privilege to be in their in their presence. One had served as a senator in Ottawa for a number of years. Another had been an influential bank bank manager at a big bank in downtown Saskatoon when it really counted to be a bank manager. There was a former provincial court judge at the table. Then, of course, there was my friend who was a very wealthy businessman. Every Thursday morning through those winter months, we'd meet at Bud Ruckers for coffee. In the summer, they were on the golf course. But near the end of one summer, my friend approached me after a Sunday morning worship service and asked if I had time to stop in and see Judge King. He'd been admitted to the hospital. I have to admit that I was a little nervous as I headed up to the hospital for this visit. We'd not been meeting at Fuddruckers. They'd been on the golf course most of the summer. Would he even remember me? As I approached the door of his room, I could see him sitting on the edge of his bed. His hands were resting on his knees and the oxygen tube was clipped in his nose and he was staring at a spot on the floor. As I entered the room, I addressed him respectfully. Good morning, Judge King. I'm George Boyd, Merv Wilson's pastor. He looked up and responded as I sat down next to him on the edge of his bed. Hi, George. Of course I remember you. Thanks for coming. His eyes were turned to the floor. His shoulders were slumped and he looked so sad. How you doing, Judge King? To which he responded, Well, George, the doctor was just in. and I've been diagnosed with inoperable cancer. My time is limited. We sat quietly for a moment, and then I responded, Well, Judge King, you've been given quite a gift today. Not everyone has a chance to prepare for their death, to get their affairs in order, especially with God. Can I share a verse of scripture that has really helped me? And I shared 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13 with Judge King. And this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, we went on to talk about his spiritual journey. How over the years he had pretty much avoided church. He shared that he had been exposed to church as a very young boy. But his wife was never really interested in spiritual things. They were married young and church had never been a part of their lives. I left the hospital that day 
celebrating the opportunity that I had to share my faith. A week or so later, it was Judge King's wife who called me at the church. She said that Judge King had been asking for me. And she went on to say that she knew that they weren't part of our church, but she was just wondering if I'd have time to stop by their home for a visit. That was the first of several visits over the next number of weeks. On one visit, Judge King asked me to write out on a card the verses that I'd shared with him in the hospital that day. And every time I went to visit him, that card sat on his nightstand inside his bed. It wasn't long after that that he died, but not before crossing over from death to eternal life. A few days after his death, I received another call asking if I would officiate at what turned out to be the largest funeral services for service I have ever officiated at, all because of a spiritual conversation that took place on the edge of a hospital bed. At this point, in John chapter 4, there are only three participants Jesus, the woman, and his disciples. And oh yes, the narrator. But each of these participants provide us with an insight that will enable us to be more intentional in our efforts to build bridges that lead to spiritual conversations like the one I had on the edge of that hospital bed. Building bridges that lead to spiritual conversations require intentionality. Jesus' disciples, having just returned from their shopping trip, provide the first insight. Avoid distractions. Jesus' disciples were amazed to find him speaking to a woman and were urging him to eat. Notice verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? At this point, at what point? Well, Jesus had just disclosed his true identity to this Samaritan woman. I am the Christ. And they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Wait a minute. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine what they would how they would have responded if they knew what we know about this woman? That she is a despised, immoral, marginalized Samaritan woman. The fact that he was speaking to a woman was bad enough. You see in the first century Palestine, men did not speak to women in public not even their own wives. And a rabbi, my goodness, a rabbi to speak to a woman was considered at best a waste of time. At worst, a distraction from studying the Torah, which could result in eternal damnation. 
But notice Jesus' disciples and concerns remained unspoken. We aren't told why. But clearly, these culturally accepted prejudices were a distraction for the disciples. Trust me, there was no way any one of them would have engaged in a conversation with this woman. Hmm. And yet, Romans chapter 2, verse 11, is pretty clear. For God does not show favoritism. Then you'll remember Peter, who, having his Judaism adjusted, remember the sheet that came down from heaven full of unclean animals and God telling him to eat? And Peter saying, whoa, no, I can't touch that. And then from there, he went to Cornelius' house, shared the gospel, and his whole family came to know Christ. Well, Peter admits in Acts chapter 10, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God does not show favoritism. And as I reflect on our own Canadian context, it seems to me that well, we pride ourselves in our tolerance and inclusivity. In fact, some would even go as far as to boast that we've become a culture that is intolerant of any kind of intolerance or prejudice, except for maybe things relating to Christianity. It seems to me that our culture tolerates an intolerance for Christianity because of Christianity's so-called intolerance. It really gets silly, doesn't it? But regardless of how our culture performs, you and I need to be making a concerted effort to avoid the distractions that accompany personal prejudices or favoritism. And I know that it's hard not to have favorites. The Apostle James addresses this in his account, his epistle, James chapter 2. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Here's the point. We need to be prepared to build a bridge that leads to a spiritual conversation with anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen by avoiding distractions, personal favoritism or prejudice are distractions to be avoided. And please don't be impatient or write people off by labeling him unreachable. It's not going to happen. God is more than capable of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Our job is to build bridges that lead to spiritual conversation. That's it. The woman's contribution is sandwiched actually between two responses from the disciples. We'll come back to her in a minute, but drop down to verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to each other, 
No one brought him anything to eat, did they? These disciples were, they were on a mission. They left Jesus thirsty, hungry, and totally exhausted, sitting by a well. Well, they went off to the city to buy food. Remember verse 8? To be fair, this was their responsibility. As disciples of Jesus, they were to care for the needs of their rabbi. But notice Jesus' response to his disciples urging to eat. I have food to eat that you do not know about. This is not a denial of Jesus' humanity. Jesus is still hungry, thirsty, and absolutely exhausted. But something has changed here. Spiritual conversations, they can do that. Our personal needs, our wants, our our dreams, they can fade into the background as we engage in, in conversations that have eternal consequences or ramifications. But his disciples were distracted by a personal preoccupation. They're on a mission to fulfill their responsibility. Come on, eat up. Preoccupations with fulfilling our personal responsibilities, completing our to-do list, sticking to the agenda, they can become distractions that will need to be avoided if we're going to be intentional in our efforts to build bridges that lead to spiritual conversations. Building bridges that lead to spiritual conversations requires intentionality. Intentionally avoiding distractions. Distractions like personal prejudices and or preoccupations. And can I just quickly add something here that may be a little bit off topic? But I think it's important to say this kind of activity should never keep us from fulfilling our responsibilities at work. Unless you are making your living from the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, let's be building bridges that lead to spiritual conversations on our own time. And I want to be careful saying that, but, but while we work, let's work at it with all our hearts as working for the Lord. You see, I've worked with lots of Christians over the years on the construction site, even had Christian bosses. And sometimes it can be a problem. Insight number two, keep it simple. The KISS principle, listen to verse 28. Let's read that, beginning at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. The woman left the water pot, returned to the city, and invited others to come and investigate what she had discovered. Like, Unlike Jesus' disciples, this woman was prepared to abandon her original mission. The water pot was left behind. Some have speculated that she left it for Jesus being sensitive to the need that he had expressed earlier. 
Others have seen it as a symbolic reference, that she was prepared to let go of what is old, embrace the new. We're not told why the pot was left behind. Perhaps it was as simple as she just got caught up on the excitement and enthusiasm, the anticipation of sharing her discovery with others. After all, this water pot would have slowed her trip back, the trip she was on back to the city. Her testimony to the men of the city was delivered in the form of a question. How appropriate. A dogmatic assertion from this wayward woman would have been easily dismissed, blown off. But a question? I have a book on my shelf in the study titled Leading with Questions. This woman led with a question. Her question was aimed at their curiosity, inviting them to investigate her recent discovery. And notice how the question was introduced. Come see a man who told me all things I've done. Perhaps she was referring to all those things that she had, well, at least been reluctant to disclose. Remember her half-truth? I have no husband. And Jesus responded in verse 17, You've correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And the conversation continued. Where have we heard that come and see invitation before? Turn back with me to John chapter 1. Notice verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. Jesus is extending an invitation to those two disciples of John the Baptist. And then flip over to chapter 1, verse 46. We see Philip also using the same expression when addressing a skeptical Nathaniel. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Even the psalmist offers a similar invitation in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God is hospitable and is generous with his invitations. And not just for salvation. Listen to this, these examples of God dressed in human flesh from the lips of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mark chapter 1, verse 19, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Come to me. Come. Follow me. Abide in me. We might reject him, but we can never say that we have not been invited. 
as we build bridges that lead to spiritual conversations, we need to offer invitations to come and see. Now granted, we can't leave the city and come and see Jesus. But I think there are at least three places where we can invite them to meet Jesus today. Come and see Jesus in the church. Now granted, Jesus isn't in every localized expression of the church. But in scripture, the church is referred to as the body of Christ, of which Jesus is the head. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. So the rock is a localized expression of the body of Christ. And I trust that is that we are a visible expression of Christ in this community. And if we're not, then let's make the adjustments that we need to make so that we will be. John chapter 17, verse 23, Jesus prays for us. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. We'll never be a perfect reflection of the body of Christ. But that's never intended to be an excuse. Come and see Christ here at the rock. And then secondly, in the scriptures, the living and active word of God, specifically the four biographical accounts of Jesus, life and ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And thirdly, in our own testimonies, tell of the difference that God is making in your life. Come and see how God is renovating my life from the inside out. Building bridges that lead to spiritual conversations requires intentionality. Intentionally. Keep it simple. Come and see. The third insight that will enable us to be more intentional in our efforts to build bridges that lead to spiritual conversations comes from Jesus himself. Insight number three, make it a priority. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look in the fields. They are that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus taught his followers to place the spiritual needs of others before their own physical needs. And how on earth do we do that? By keeping the main thing the main thing. Notice again verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
The New International Version translates the verse, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. And Jesus was able to maintain that focus throughout his earthly life. So that at the end of his life, hanging on a cross with, actually by nails, driven through his hands and his feet, he was able to declare with his last breath, it is finished. John chapter 9, verse 30. And Jesus taught his followers to keep the main thing, the main thing. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 reads, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All what things? All those physical needs that can prevent us from thinking about the spiritual needs of others. Seek first the kingdom means God's business first. Everything else second. And his righteousness means that we are committed to living an obedient life. John chapter 4 verse 21 reads, He who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and will disclose myself to him. By keeping the main thing, the main thing, you and I will be able to place the spiritual needs of other people before our own physical needs, wants, and insatiable appetites for more and more and more. And secondly, by carp diem. Remember Robin Williams in the movie Dead Poets Society? I think it's one of Cynthia's favorite movies of all time. In a speech to a class of boys in an all-boys school, private school, Robin Williams, playing the maverick professor John Keating, inspires his students not only to appreciate poetry, but also to seize opportunities with the intention of making the most of them. And according to Jesus, that means responding appropriately and in a timely manner to the needs of other people, the spiritual needs of other people. The Apostle Paul declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is not the time to procrastinate. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Do you catch the sense of urgency in Jesus' voice? Already he who reaps is drawing a wage. Others are already engaged and are receiving the rewards. You will not be the first. Roll up your sleeves and get involved. By looking for opportunities to seize the day, you and I will be able to place the spiritual needs of other people before our own physical needs, wants, and insatiable appetites for more and more. And finally, by recognizing that the ministry of reconciliation is a collaborative effort. In other words, 
it requires both sowers and reapers. I remember being told a number of years ago that it takes on average seven clear presentations of the gospel before someone will respond by trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And those seven presentations need to become from seven different credible witnesses. Credible to that person that's being on the receiving end. Now over the years I've come to a more biblically accurate understanding that unless God draws them and the Holy Spirit enlightens them, as Glenn mentioned earlier, so that they can understand these spiritual realities, it can be 70 times 7 presentation and it will not make a difference. But here's the point. We need one another. Each one of us has an important part to play in God's redemptive plans. His desire is that we're all engaged in doing the work of evangelists. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 wrote these words. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are his ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the greatest Christmas message we could ever give to our families, our friends and our associates who are not trusting Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. We beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And listen, you don't have to be both sower and reaper. Just keep sharing the message of reconciliation. Share your story, as Glenn encouraged us earlier. Share the gospel through your proclamations, demonstration, the way you live your life, and through your celebrations. And then leave the results with God. And that can sometimes be the hardest part. Because we love people. But make building bridges that lead to spiritual conversations a priority. By keeping the main thing the main thing, by making the most of every opportunity, by recognizing that the Ministry of Reconciliation is a collaborative effort, building bridges that lead to spiritual conversations requires intentionality. Intentionally make it a priority. Let's be intentional in our efforts to build bridges that lead to spiritual conversation, especially during this season of the year, by avoiding distractions, by keeping it simple, and by making it a priority. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this 
season of the year. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. You clothed yourself in human flesh and changed the course of human history. Thank you for the reconciliation that Jesus makes possible with you and with each other. For those who are not yet trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that the true message of Christmas would not be lost in the presence, the parties, and the the pressures of our celebration. Draw them to yourself, we pray. For those that are finding this a most difficult season of the year because of memories, loneliness, losses, we'd ask that you'd be a, a special source of comfort to them. And Father, would you help us to be intentional in our efforts to build bridges that lead to spiritual conversations, not only in this season, but in the days ahead. Enable us to be faithful ambassadors by your spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.